Tree Talks podcast acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waters on which this podcast is produced. We recognize their continuing connection to the land and waters and thank them for protecting this coastline and its ecosystem since time immemorial. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. Sovereignty has never been ceded, meaning the land was taken by force and has been retained by force. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to episode 12 of Tree Talks podcast with your host Mona Brookoff. This episode we'll be talking to Liz George from Sunshine Coast, Kabi 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 country and I'm really looking forward to seeing what she says. So um, yeah, I want to start with your name and where you came from and we'll go from there. Okie dokie. So my name's Alyssa George. My friends all call me Liss. I grew up in Newcastle, New South Wales. Um, yeah, nice coastal beach town. I uh, lived with a bush block behind me that we used to go and play in all the time. We used to have to walk through the bush to get to the bus stop. So I guess that's where my love for trees and plants and things like that um, kind of grew from. Except for back then, the wattles. I always hated the acacias because as a kid, I was massively allergic to them. I used to rash out every year when they'd come out and flower. And it took me years to work out that I used to walk through a big um, bush of acacia on the way to the bus stop every morning. And that's why I constantly had a rash as a kid. So uh, I don't seem to rash up anymore from that, but I have a lot of allergies, funnily enough, to plants and insects and things that want to kill you in the bush. That's so funny. I did not know that. And you wouldn't even think that because, yeah, you're when I've worked with you, we're like in the bush and you never show anything. Did you, okay, did you know the name of the trees when you were little? Did anybody teach you that or is those things you learned as, further on? I knew the things we had in our garden and I knew eucalyptuses probably, but not all the little, I think like everyone until you get into horticulture or conservation, everything's green and pretty. You don't actually realise if you're looking at a weed or a native it's just beautiful. My mum was into gardening, mm. so I knew all the plants and things that she did, and we used to get paid, you know, um, for doing little jobs. So you could do the gardening, you could do the edges, the mowing, um, and all those kind of things to get our pocket money as kids. So I used to do a lot of mowing and gardening kind of to get my cash. And then after growing up, and and, and so as a Moving from a kid to adulthood then, um, did you want to avoid the bush because of these allergies? Did that affect what how you, what you did next? I don't think I avoided it so much because after Newcastle, I moved to Sydney and there was not so much bush there anyway. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, there wasn't much bush at all in Sydney. You had a little coastal fringe and that was it. So moving from Newcastle to Sydney... Um, I worked in childcare, so I really wasn't immersed in the bush in Sydney like I am now in Queensland. So, you know, we lived there until Jess was about to go to school and then went, no, this is a concrete jungle. I don't want her to grow up in a place with no trees or anything like that and just concrete and buildings around. So that's when we sold everything, bought a combi, moved up the coast and we just travelled until we found a town that we actually liked. And when we got to Sunshine Coast, everyone was smiling and happy and there was that stench of the sugarcane um, all through the town. And we were like, why can't it, people smell that? <laughs> it, we, we found it disgusting to the point where we were walking around with our T-shirts over our noses and like, what's wrong with people? Can't they smell it? Um but everyone was so happy here that we decided to settle Sunshine Coast. Um, two questions. When you moved to Sydney, was it, did you, did 
did you know that oh this is not bush and I miss that or were you just okay I'm in the city now this is the way it is like and how so how long were you in the city and did you did did the less greenery affect did you know if it affected you in any way um probably not I was probably in my early 20s at that time and we spent a lot more time in the city and partying and that kind of stuff as you do as a youngster um probably when Jess was born, we started, you know, going to parks and things like that and to the beaches. We always did lots of camping. So the camping was our escape from the city to go different places. Um, we'd just go and camp on the beach down Kiama Way or, um, oh, you know, any of the areas around where you could. Kangaroo Valley, we did a lot of camping and stuff down Kangaroo Valley. Um, so I guess we were always escaping to the bush for holidays and for weekends. But I can't say I was really um, aware of missing the bush at that time. And then you went to um, Sunshine Coast, which is a subtropical um, climate. and um, So, yeah, different climate. And, well, first is did eventually you got used to the smell? <laughs> Yeah, so we spent six months travelling up the coast and so we were immersed in camping at that time. Everything was um, bush cooking, camping every single night for six months, um, got to the sunny coast and I guess I think probably about three years after we got, they stopped the burning of the sugarcane and the mill closed down. So um, I guess we got used to it. And then it stopped, so we didn't have to put up with that really for that long. Um, how did then move into a greener suburb and things? How did that impact you and your family? Like, um, was you changed activities, or um, did you see a change within the family of what you did? No, we just continued camping all the time. You know, most weekends we were off camping, um, getting out into the bush or the beach or um, also, we didn't have much money, so uh, it's a cheap, fun thing to do with your family mm. that you can just get out and do stuff like that. Mm. So, um, yeah, we just explored the area, all the beaches, all the coasts, all the rainforest, and then we kept on travelling up through Queensland, um, East Coast, and kept on coming back to the Sunshine Coast. Like every couple of months we'd get out of Sunshine Coast and we'd always end up back here again. And that's why we decided this is the place we would put Jess into school and we would settle because we weren't sure where we were going to settle. We just wanted something that wasn't Sydney and wasn't that big concrete jungle effect, mm. but also had enough stuff that we could offer her a good life. Did you um, start learning your plants then because of the different ecosystem that's up there or like how how did no, you I was working in childcare at the time. Yeah. I was a preschool teacher and I guess I was um, submerged into that. And then when I left um, working in daycare, I had been looking at the environment and thinking I need to do something different and I want to get into environmental works. So I saw an ad in the paper, the newspaper, where people used to find jobs <laughs> and they were advertising for um, volunteers for Petrie Creek Catchment Care Nursery. So I had just put in an application to became, become a volunteer there and then I saw a job that was a traineeship for Petrie Creek Catchment Care Group. So I applied for that and it was the one job I had to actually really talk myself down so that I could get into it because it was kind of like a skilling Queenslander now what we offer. It was a community jobs program and it was supposed to be for people who struggled um, getting into work or mothers re-entering the workforce. So I kind of had to just go in and really talk myself down <laughs> to get that position. And I was lucky enough to get picked for the team and that was where I started um, and I've been in that industry ever since. And that was the end of 2005 when I started that traineeship. 
how was it then going from childcare education to um, plants? How, like awesome. You liked it straight away. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't mind the hot physical work. Um, I love to see what I've done and then go, wow, we made a, an we made an impact on that. So yeah, straight away, I absolutely loved it, and I knew that that was for me. Um, started learning the plants. Uh, back then too, the books that we had, <laughs> there were nothing on, and that's what I tell students nowadays. You guys are so lucky. You have all these apps for IDing. You have all these fantastic books. I had this, the suburban, suburban weeds. weeds, and if you've ever seen this book, I. It's, it's still good, but it's line drawings. Nothing on, say, what we have these days where you get a whole page oh, yeah, and a this... picture of a plant pressing and you can actually put it right up against it and go, yeah, that's it. Or, you know, the books and the guides that we have these days are mm. so much better. Um yeah, I had this book and it was on grasses and it was about this thick and there wasn't one picture in it. And oh, that's no. how I learnt my grasses. Oh, and I remember my boss saying, Liz, you're going to be an expert on grasses. And I was like, I don't want to be. <laughs> I don't want to be an expert on grasses, no. <laughs> um, was, yeah, what was it that interested you? Like what if so, uh, it's a completely different world and it's a completely different language. It, I struggle with the language. Is a different language, plant ID and things. Oh, was... de definitely. And back then, to be honest, we weren't using botanical names and we didn't really have to know your natives. What you were looking at were what were the weeds. If you could ID the weeds, it didn't matter what native tree it was. It was just, yep, that's a native and these are the weeds. So we focused back then way more on recognising weeds mm. and taking them out. And I think that's where the industry is changing quite a lot and everyone wants to be a botanist. Everyone wants to be out there IDing plants. And for me it's to try and find some, I think that they're trying to find some random new plant so they can name it after themselves or whatever it may be. Um and I don't feel as much work is getting done as when we were going out and we were doing the work. We were there to get the weeds and to encourage all the natives to grow back in their place with like assisted regeneration. Nowadays, there's a lot more focus on how good you are because you can name every native plant that you can see mm. where I, it, it's great that you can, but to me, it's not as important as recognising all your weeds and removing them to be able to create that better ecosystem. And, and this is in um, bush bushland that you'll be doing it. So the type of sites that you would have been working on then and now, is that the same? Yeah, I guess we started on a lot of the bigger jobs too. I guess regions changed a lot in that 20 years because we were um, we started from scratch getting all the massive camphoral stand. So there was a lot of chainsaw work and stuff like that initially. And I guess randomly now you might get one or two as council buy more offsets and things, there becomes that work. But a lot of our areas are in maintenance runs where you're doing um, secondary works and stuff. A lot of the primary works has been done the whole coastland strip because that was where we put our priority money into because that's where tourism is, so that's where the money goes to. And I guess in that it's a bit unfortunate because the weeds are coming from the hinterland down towards the coast and the coast is where all the money gets spent. So we kind of push, push, comes back, push, push, comes back. So it would be great if we could have this, yeah, we're spending money on the coast, but at the same time from the hinterland the we're trying to work down through those um, catchments and getting any weeds that are spreading through the catchments. It's getting um, better like that, but we just don't have the money that we can go out and get everything. So it has to be prioritised, I guess. What is the importance of that? Why, why can't you just let anything grow along the coast? And 
why why do people do bush regen what do you mean why do people do bush regen yeah like if 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 there's vegetation remember how you said when we're and most of us when i guess we're like oh it's green so it's pretty yeah why can't we just keep green space and 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 leave all the weeds in place yeah because uh, they're displacing all the native um, vegetation, which then impacts the um, the wildlife, food sources. We ended up with monocultures of a certain weed that takes over that whole area. I guess for the coast, a lot of it's um, amenities and making it look good. And in saying that, we actually fight with council. Um, we don't physically fight, but there's a bit of a fight where they'll still plant environmental weeds around the toilet blocks and things at a beach. And on the other side of that beach fence, we're cutting out that exact same plant um, because it's an environmental weed. And it's a bit of a, um, a fight between conservation and the planting team. They want to plant all these things with pretty flowers that come from Africa and all over the place and you're like come on we're getting rid of that Mm. why would you now be planting that same thing 20 meters away from where you're paying me to get rid of that but those they're not talk to it they don't talk to each other yeah the two arms has that been the same like since like 20 years like has have you seen a change in that interaction i think it's getting better but it still does happen because i use that um snap solve send up oh yeah if I see something I'm like no what did you plant that there for give them a whole bunch of reasons why it's like spiky near a toilet block got a white sap that's going to give people allergies you just cut beautiful natives out to put that there can we talk about why Mm. um and then generally you get a phone call from them and uh a lot of the times they do take that advice and I've seen them come along and re-chop them out but it's like do your research first why you know I know you learned that pretty plant but make sure it's not an environmental weed before you're putting it in and I guess that comes with that education though and what you've been taught wherever you've been educated Mm. do you think this is the same for um, private households then as well the impact that they have on um, their neighbours and then in pri- uh, yeah. public areas? Yeah, definitely. Even worse, though, because they're not aware of anything the same. It's, it's a pretty plant. I put it there. And I guess the garden markets and stuff aren't well, – and even Bunnings, Mitre 10, they're still selling environmental weeds, um, which you would think if I go to Bunnings and I buy something – that it's safe to put in my garden. It's not going to cause an environmental impact. Mm. Um, the same as uh, Mitre 10. I've been down there and I'm just like, oh, gosh, you know, why are they still selling coffee? Why are they still selling um, uh, parastigia? Like all these things that we spend a lot of money and we allow people to plant them in their gardens that go over their fences into bushland areas because we still do have a lot of bushland on the sunny coast, we're super lucky to have most um, most estates have massive bushland area that encircles them um, with parks and green spaces and stuff like that. And if I don't know because I'm oblivious and I go and plant something like um, uh, Himalayan ash, within five years I've got that then going over my fence, into the gutters, spreading into the creeks, spreading everywhere so um i guess initially it was the government that put out a lot of our worst weeds Mm. like camphor laurel 1970s suggested for every school to have one in their garden for shade every school's on a river or creek system now you can map our rivers and creeks by camphor laurels so we've been slowly over the 20 years plodding along at trying to remove those now singapore daisy Think again, 1970s, uh, government said that it'll stabilise creek banks. Bum, bum, it doesn't. But now we're left with the remnants of that and we'll be fighting that for years and years and years. And there's also, I think, 
that I found interesting of how how you remove it of not just rip everything out and just plant some stuff in it was that also different in the 20 years that you were in of how people learned of how to and if you could explain the process of how things are removed and 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 um, replanted I think that the bones of the ideas have always been pretty good um and I guess that we learned through what we did and when we had detrimental effects that you go oops I learned that maybe I um denuded that bank too too much too soon or looking at um weather patterns and weather systems and understanding through being in the industry when your rain periods are going to come so making sure that over that January February period that you might change your system to brush cutting something rather than um, using herbicide because you don't want to kill everything on the bank because then you've destabilized it and and I'm sure I did lots of um, improper things when I started but I learned a lot and that's what I always try to teach my students, that if you make a mistake, don't be massively concerned or beat yourself up about it because what you'll do is you'll learn massively from that. And I learned my biggest lessons from mistakes I made in the, part, in the past. But also I guess we were really lucky back in the day that council officers allowed us to trial things. Mm. Um, you were allowed to go out and... And if you had an idea and you thought something might work, you could put it to a council officer and say, hey, um, what do you think if we try this herbicide or we try this method? And they'd let us patch off a little section and do a trial and come back and go, yep, that worked great. Or no, that wasn't the best approach. Let's try something different. So I guess I've been really lucky to be able to be through that whole period where trials did take place with did a lot of trials on different herbicides in coastal areas as well to make sure that what we were using on the beaches wasn't going to kill the rest of um, the species. So we did four-year projects on lots of different herbicides, making sure that we knew best practice methodologies. And mm. I guess from seeing that, I learnt so much from seeing the results of all of those trials. Mm. And I'm really lucky that I've been able to be a part of a lot of those things in the early days. Yeah. Um, yeah. And not just about the types of chemicals, but also how you um, apply them. Right. There was there's different ways. That's what I've learned from you as well. Like that chemicals are OK as long as you know what they are and how to use them and how to apply them in in the right way. And again, this goes back to anybody can go and buy chemicals, even though when you work with it, um within that, the bush regen industry or horticulture or as an arborist you need to need a, to go to through training acdc yeah. training to be able to yeah. apply them but then again people anybody can go out and and buy uh, has there been any different change in policies of of those because it feels like people put so much effort and and money and things into protecting the native um ecosystem but but then you've got anybody buying any plants anybody buying any um chemicals has there been a change or do you see anything happening with that in in the time that you've been here uh working um probably not for the homeowners and that but for us working on council and government sites and things like that definitely and that would come from you know people going to uni learning trialing stuff and coming up with better methods and things like that um i'm really passionate about making sure people aren't afraid of herbicides because we can't do the job without herbicides but learning when to use them and having an integrated um, pest management strategy so that we can um, use herbicides when we need them and when we don't hand weeding or um, maybe allowing the pastures to grow over for a while if we're not able to um, manage all of the area just let some of the other pastures grow over and smother out those weeds for now and we'll come back and deal with that section later when we've got the time um, yeah I think definitely practices are getting better um, 
because people have learned and trialed things and seen what worked, what didn't, and um, we just get better. I think the main thing that we need to focus on, though, is uh, follow-up work. You know, we do 10 years on a site, put hundreds of thousands of dollars into that site, and then they think, cool, it's all good. And then you go back and visit that site five years later and it's just reverted straight back because upstream in the catchment, those weeds are continually to come through that site. And I think that's where I get the most frustrated when I go to sites that I know I put blood, sweat and tears into and now they're actually just reverted to almost as bad as what they were before I touched the site 15 years ago. That to me is probably the most heartbreaking thing. So every time I go to a site like that, I put a nice little email to council to say, hello, I've just visited this site and I think you may want to go and send someone to do an inspection course, blah, blah, blah. Or I'll point out the worst weeds there and take photos, GPS them and send them off and say, hey, can we get a contractor in to manage this? It's on a major creek. It's going to spread through all these other towns. If we bite it off here and beat it, mm. we could save a lot of money in the future. Mm. Do you think, um, oh, one, do you know if they ever do any surveys on the species of a site before you go on there? And that's not just vegetation, but also um, animals and birds and whatnot. Um, and then once it's been um, cleaned up and worked on, do they ever do a survey then of, of what species are, have been are, have come up back onto site? Is that ever done, do you know? Yeah, definitely. That's what the boa mapping is all about. But what we do um, on the Sunshine Coast, the bushland operational assessment mapping. So usually I used to do boa mapping um, when I was working for ECO. Uh, you go out into the site, you'll map every area into um different categories of bushland from excellent to poor. Um, and then you'll be mapping on them, uh, your priority weeds, where they are um, and when you're going to focus your works. And along with that would be a management plan. And you're always going to be starting in your excellent areas so that you can get rid of the, well, an excellent area is not going to have any weeds, but probably around the perimeters it's going to be where it might want to be entering in. So you're always going to be working those really good areas first and working your way back to the poor. And then every five years um, of that site getting worked, a new BOA mapping will be done and it will show how uh, a site will either be advancing or it can still, it can show how it can be getting worse as well. Um, if you've had flooding or bushfire or something coming through, your site's not always going to be advancing. It can show detrimental effects on it as well. So we get this snapshot of every five years um, how the bushland of that site is actually looking and if we're having a win on it or if we need to maybe change our practices, mm. which is, I love that BOA system. Can a site ever go... Um just be left like and it's can can all sites be recovered or or is there times where it's like this is gone this is this site is um you know i'm thinking of road sites when going i, I remember going around gimpy and they've got cat claw on uh vine on most of things and i'm like well who's doing that and would that ever be looked at and if and if not there's no chance of of anything surviving once it's been suffocated like that. Yeah, I think like if you're talking those gim gimpy roadsides, that's TMR land. So transport main roads are going to own that first, I think it's five metres from the road into the vegetation. Yeah. And then it might be council might own the next 10 metres. Uh, TMR's got no money that they put um, into regeneration or weed control to my knowledge I've never seen TMR put any money into mm. anything unless it's an offset because they're going to put a new road through something mm. um yeah those kind of sites 
the, the councils and that also around that area don't have much money to be able to put in. So it's all to do with the budget, mm. the amount of people that are living. I guess Sunshine Coast, we have the environmental levy on our rates. So we pay a levy on our rates for um, buying offsets and for all the work that Sunshine Coast Council does put into a lot of our bush care areas. We put loads of money in every year to regenerating restoring areas so I think it's probably council dependent on what their budget is uh we're lucky we've got that biosphere here so uh environment is high priority for Mm. us here because we want to keep that beauty that we do have Mm. um I, I guess some sites can't ever be restored to what they were previously and in some cases, we don't even try to be able to bring them back to original veg condition. We bring them back to as close as possible because species have died out. Um, there's been uh, waterways and things put through drainage systems, which has changed that geology and the land zone types. Uh, I did a reveg the other day um, on TAFE grounds where uh, it was a dam. And now the dam's full of rock. So you go to do something and do a soil test. You're like, well, it's not original. We're never going to get original from here. And we're never going to be able to put original back because the pH is always going to be different and the soil conditions are always going to be different. So I guess you can just do as good as you can Mm. on those sites. Um, I get annoyed with the word naturalisation where they think, Oh, that weed's too much of a problem to get rid of, so now it's naturalised. That grates on me. I'm like, no, try harder. Do you think that um, because have you had experience of something that people have said is naturalised and you've been able to to eradicate or to change the balance of what that species was doing? Um, I always try to get rid of all the weeds on the side if I can kind of mm. thing. If I don't care if they think it's naturalised. I'm like, nah, you don't belong here. <laughs> Out you go. Um, in in some cases, I can see the benefit of some of those um, naturalised plants. Say on coastal areas, there's the beach primrose. It's the first thing that comes in. It stabilises the dunes. Without it, we would struggle to be able to retain the sand. So in that case, it's the one and only naturalised weed that I've seen a benefit for and gone, okay, I can see you have a place. Mm. And it generally that weed, once natives are established, it just dies out in its own, which is kind of a cool thing about that beach primrose. Um. Two things, one about weeds and one about what we look at for bush regen. The weeds, a lot of people will say, well, weeds are just species that um, that you don't want somewhere. Um, um, you sound like the French lady I talked to on the weed workshop, which said to me, oh, what, because I am from France, you think I am a weed too? <laughs> yes. And I said, yes, you are. <laughs> yeah so what's your take on that when people that's the you know because i you do all this work yet then there's um a lot of people that are just like well i like the garden as this whatever species they are and then the others that say well it's a weed as long as it's doing something to um what's your thought process on i guess i try to educate people about why they're detrimental so for some reason people from south australia love um umbrella trees uh, on the sunshine coast which are massive weed to sunshine coast native to northern queensland people from south australia will cry if you're trying to cut down an umbrella tree or kill it but i don't think they understand how bad they can be for the environment until they've seen, you know, a whole bushland that is pure umbrella trees or how badly they're taking over the coast with their root systems and stuff like that. Um, 
I think education always goes a long, long way and 90% of the time people are willing to change their opinions when you explain, Mm. you know, all of those berries on the top, the birds take them into the bushland, they love them. Um, It's actually spreading them from your garden. It's not contained in your garden or like I was saying um, before about uh, having kufia, people buy that from Bunnings, um, kufia cartilagensis, planted in their garden. It goes down into the drain, ends up in all of our wetland areas and kufia will flower at like three centimetres high. So once that's in a wetland area, you've got no chance of getting rid of it unless you kill everything else as well. Mm. So things like that I get frustrated as because um, I don't believe they should be sold anymore. If we've been able to prove it's bad for the environment, the council's spending hundreds of thousands of dollars every year removing these weeds, why are we continue to allow people to buy them and put them into their gardens? Mm. Um, I think it's going to change, though. Coming into El Nino again, it's going to get dry, it's going to get hot, all those exotics are going to die and people will start planting native gardens because they're realising now that our climate is made for these plants, our soils are made for these plants so they can survive without you out there watering them every second day Um, and that's where it will get back to again. Once we go back into drought and you're not allowed to water your garden every day, I think people are changing and realising the benefits of natives. Mm. Natives should be made cheaper. Yeah. Make make the exotics more expensive. People are going to plant the cheaper Mm. 90% Mm. of the time. And then there's the other people that just don't give a shit, really. They don't care. Yeah. What what does Bushrujan, kind of like, what is it and then what is the outcome that you're hoping for? So we're trying to replicate a regional vegetation community. Um, So we're looking at the regional ecosystem, which is telling us um, your bioregion, your land zone and your veg type. And so that's exactly what we're trying to replicate, plants that will grow in that soil type because it's got either good drainage or poor drainage because all the plants are adapted to where they're meant to live. Um, that's what we're trying to replace. So we'll go on um, to Q-Globe, get a regional ecosystem code, go across to um, regional ecosystem description, and then you can get yourself canopy species is going to tell you the major key canopy species. Scroll down a little bit more, it's going to give you the major veg community for that geology type. So We'll run by that, but then also look at wild net, get a wild net species list for the species that would be contained in that regional ecosystem. And we're planting from that RE. We don't want to be bringing in something else purely because, oh, that's pretty. Uh, We can leave that for gardens and streetscapes. Bush Regen, I'm a bit purist. I think it should go back to how it was Um, and it annoys me when people just don't look at the REs and just think, oh, well, this kind of belongs here. Well, no, not kind of. Let's work out what belongs there and put it back properly. That's what I'm trying to achieve and that's, I guess, what I'm trying to teach people to achieve as well. Do you think that those things could be replicated? And, I mean, not everyone's going to go onto a website to check all those things, but do you think that could be replicated in people's in people's gardens? To some extent, yeah, definitely. I think more so what your soil drainage and stuff like that is going to be what they need. And when you're looking at a garden, you're not looking for canopy species unless you've got a really big garden. You're looking more for shrubs, grasses, ground covers with maybe a couple of taller species. But like you were saying before, we don't want to be putting things in that are going to be damaging fence lines and drainage and um and things like that. And that's where I guess to me native nurseries um, need to be giving advice to people of what's going to grow in their, you know, 
Mm. as close to the regional ecosystem that surrounds them as possible, but it's not going to be those canopy species. It's going to be mid-strata and ground strata species that they're going to be wanting to put in. And then if they are seeding, fruiting, and the fruits get into the drainage systems, that's okay because it's just going to end up down the street in the bush that's got the similar RE Mm. and it will cope there Mm-mm. without creating a problem. If we're becoming more urban urban and losing a bit more bushland because of our population, human population, and so if we're only creating, if we're building these big houses with these small landscapes for small shrub types, um, I wonder what the impact's going to be with those bushlands where there's not much of a wildlife corridor then because we're we're reducing that and how that affects the ecosystem. Yeah, I guess there's a few different thoughts go through my head there. I've been looking at a lot um, at the moment about a lot of uh, native wildlife getting eaten by dogs and things where they're able to go from the bushland into the trees along the edges and then down into the gardens and getting attacked by um, dogs, cats and, you know, pets at home. So... I don't know how I feel about that, to be honest. I, I'm into minds of those higher trees, uh, easier access into gardens, and what do people actually do to try and protect possums, say, coming down to your garden um, and your dog or cat attacking it? Do we remove those trees around the edges and keep more um, corridor wildlife corridors behind residential areas? And uh, I don't know, I'm stuck on that one. We've got a resident possum next door that's uh, up in the Siagoras, up in the, what's that, palm? I can't remember its common name. Uh, And it's fighting every single night with a flying fox and they're flying, they're fighting over the fruits on it. Oh, wow. The flying fox beats the possum every night. It does these and until the possum leaves the tree. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of concerned about wildlife getting eaten in backyards and things mm. like that and the access that those perimeter trees can give to a backyard. Mm. But like you say, at the same time, we don't have enough uh, green zones and wildlife corridors for them to be able to get all their fruits and things from the wild Mm. I don't know I guess it's up to council just to continue to put in more offsets and buy land when it becomes available so that we can extend those there's got this amazing green um, corridor now going through the whole of the Obi-Obi because with that money that they've been um, using from your rates environmental levy They've bought three massive connecting properties over the last seven years. When they come up for sale, council buys them. And now that's this massive corridor that goes through the whole Obi-Obi Valley, which will connect to the Great Walk. So I guess we're getting better, Mm. you know, as property becomes available. And the new new housing estates, the regulations are becoming more you must contain retain trees and things like that in them you can't just mm. blitz it and yeah. put in exotic trees and stuff so you see new reveges everywhere going around which all the smart people that are going to uni and writing reports are writing really good reports to say hey no wildlife is important um, vegetation is important so we are getting better and after 20 years, you mentioned that you're teaching now. Um, so you're sharing that knowledge. Do you still find ways to keep your knowledge up to date as well? Or, um, yeah, or and, and how, if so, how? Yeah, we have to, which is a great thing to be able to keep our currency up to be able to teach. So you must stay attached to industry. So for me, I, well, my life is bush regen, really, like, holidays is camping and cutting out weeds at friends properties or you know um there was a really cool bio blitz here so they had the sunshine coast bio blitz where they get in all the expert speakers on 
vegetation. Um, they had a really cool uh, greater glider um, dog detection survey that we went on. So looking for scats and stuff and seeing how the dogs are now looking for koalas and um, greater gliders. And they're showing now that what they can do with the dog and looking for scats is 10 hundred times better than drone technology and stuff like that, wow. especially for say the greater gliders, they're living in hollows of trees. So the, they're not picking up that night heat of them, but a dog can walk and sniff and put its nose an inch away from a poop every single time. So yeah, just the technology is getting good. The systems, the drone technology is getting really good. So you get to see, all those things that are going on there, plant ID, fungis, animals, birds, frogs. Ecolab does a lot of surveys that I get involved in. They have the platypus monitoring surveys, the frog monitoring surveys. They have planting days, National Tree Planting Day. Um, yeah, I go to workshops all the time for Noosa District Land Care. They hold lots of really interesting workshops, so ones on galls and, you know, different tree deficiencies. There's so much on going on on the sunny coast that you can always connect in with someone mm. and learn from them. So, yeah, constantly learning because I don't want my knowledge to be old and I guess I'm lucky that most of my buddies um, are in ecological works anyway, whether it's um, with animals or plants or trees or rivers you know, I've got friends who are in every little pocket. So in our discussions, we're just constantly talking about those kind of things. And it's it's not learning as such. It's just life conversations that you learn from. Yeah. And that's what I like to pass on to my students is, like you say, anything I've got, I want you to know because I'm not on ground anymore. I'm sending you out on ground and I want you to be able to do your best out there with as much knowledge that I've got. Get out there and take it. Do you think um, if somebody who's just listening and they've never done Bush General don't understand, where could they find, do you know anywhere where they, how they can start learning about um, where they live or any workshops and things? Who would they, how might Jump they into a community group or a bush care group. So, um We've got heaps, I'm sure everywhere now has somewhat a community group, a bush care group where volunteers get out there and they work together on a community little project. Anyone can learn by picking the brains of the experts on there. You know, everyone has knowledge that they can share. I love the older people in those groups. They know a lot of the plants. They've got the time to do the research if they don't. Older people are like invaluable with their knowledge um, and generally they are a massive part of our volunteer um, network. So I'm always encouraging my students to join a community group or a bush care group, ask questions, work beside people, ask why are you doing that, um, ask what the plant is and say it as you're planting a tree say its name as you're cutting a weed out say its name throw it say its name throw it you'll soon learn it and I tell people don't try to know everything you'll just get overwhelmed just a little bit at a time and before you know it you'll have all this knowledge and wonder where it came from but definitely bush care groups get a book from your area as well like what do we got we got Mrs. natives because we're up here on sunny coast mangroves to mountains, but even like the government puts out all these kind of free books that you can weeds get from like southern. the DPI and different places. That's like weeds on southern Queensland. You can get so many books, you know, go to the op shop and buy a book if you don't have the money and, and just start looking at trees. And don't be disheartened when the botanists change their names of the plants and you think you know their names and then the botanists change their names because it doesn't matter as long as you know one of their names it's still the same plant <laughs> that's awesome and don't even care if you can't say it yeah. um you know there's a lot of people that get all snobby about oh you didn't say that that plant right it's latin 
Tomato, tomato, it doesn't matter how you say it. As long as you had a crack, you'll get better at it each time. Don't let anyone put you down for getting it wrong. My question is that I ask all my guests is if trees could talk, what do you think they would say? Stop killing me. Um, I give you a lot of shade. I give you oxygen. Why are you not being my friend? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Why don't you leave me alone? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what I'd say if I was a tree. <laughs> Thanks, Liz. Um, is there anything you wanted to say, anything that you feel like um, wasn't covered that you'd like to share? No, I think you've got it all under control there, Mona. (laughs) I really appreciate Uh, you taking the time for this. I I love listening to your story and what you've learned. And yeah, it's really incredible because you're just so open and willing to just give, yeah, like you said, all your knowledge. Um, Yeah, it's good to hear from what you. Thank you. Gave me a little trip down memory lane of, what we used to do too i hadn't thought about for quite a while <laughs> thanks liz yeah thanks mona that is it for season one tree talks podcast thank you so much for listening whether you listen to one or several episodes um i hope you enjoyed them i thoroughly um had a great time recording and editing maybe not so much editing um but sharing these talks with um you all um feel free to contact me about any feedback or anything you liked if you didn't like it you probably stopped listening and I will be coming back for a season two with many other variety of guests to uh, talk to and for us to learn from. So thank you so much and take it easy.